the Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. New Zealand's premier documentary film festival. Good evening. Another heads up for tomorrow night. Uh, documentary Edge Festival special between 10 and 11. A murder in Mansfield. Ooh, what a thing. Dad kills mum, buries her under the concrete in his new mistress's house. We speak with the kid who was 12 at the time, heard it happen, and he confronts his dad after 26 years. Here's a little background. Though. Testimony continued today in the most notorious criminal trial in Richland County history. Dr. John Boyle is accused of killing his wife, Noreen, and burying her body in the basement of his new home in Erie, Pennsylvania. The motive, prosecutors say, so he could move into that house with younger girlfriend, Sherry Campbell, who was carrying his baby. The Boyle murder trial is so hot, you'll find a television monitor outside the jam-packed Richland County courtroom. That many people want to see it. It's actually better than a soap opera because they happen right in our own town. It's just like a movie. It was like seeing something out of a horror movie, only this was real. A Richland County jury yeah, watched gruesome. a gruesome videotape of Noreen Boyle's body being exhumed from a shallow concrete grave. The 12-year-old son of accused murderer Mansfield Dr. John Boyle finally took the stand. Will you tell us who you are? I'm Collier Landry Boyle. Did anything happen during the course of that night that woke you up? The immediate thought I had was something was wrong with my mother. I heard a thud. A little... Okay, could you describe this sound for okay. us? Okay, it was about this loud. That little boy, grown up now, 2016, filmed a documentary about this and how it affected him and confronting his father, a murderer in Mansfield. That man... Uh, after 10 o'clock tomorrow night. Next up, though, Human Statistics with Jonathan Dodd. Polls about what people feel, or say they feel, from around the world. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. Get a free program at dockedge.nz. The world of human statistics, polls and surveys, what people think, or at least what people tell us they think. Ipsos do this, and Jonathan Dodd is research director uh, at Ipsos. And, oh, goodness, we're having a look at Israel Folau today <laughs> with his religious convictions. Well, yeah, g'day, Graham. Um, well, interestingly, when you start looking, it's not just Israel, because um, my colleagues over the ditch, they've been dealing with all sorts of things. And, you know, David Warner's ball tampering, and um, obviously Israel Folau, we took notice of that, with him being a Kiwi. Um, and I've even had clients and stuff wonder about this locally. We had the Chiefs with Strippergate, you know, there's the... The NRL always seem to be in, in the, wrong, the wrong bed more often than they're on the pitch. So, um, yes, yeah, so we just put a little question out there. This is in Australia, but we often find a lot of um, similarities between the two countries, and um, maybe because our athletes are so pure and innocent that um, most uh -huh. of the athletes in New Zealand don't have such issues, at least in the public area. So we asked the Kiwis about the... Not the Kiwis, the Australians. Because, you know, um, the always the issue is, is, you know, they're paid to be sports people. They don't ask to be role models, but they sort of become role models and... You know, so yeah. it, it's a tricky one. Um, I think they love being role models when they get sponsorship money for it and, and they put themselves on a pedestal, but as soon as they have to act like it too, then the questions are asked. 
Well, the commercial spokespeople with um, uh, responsibilities probably within a contract on how they're supposed to yes. behave. And yeah. that, that's different to being a role model. I think it's yep. really, if, if you were going to ask me, if the phone rang and they said Ipsos here, um, I'd say, no, don't have sports people as role models. You've really got to try harder. Yeah, but the trouble is, well, they can be great, great stories of success over adversity, and, and that's where you see, um, you can see examples of great character and, you know, and, and a lot of really good quality, you know, personal qualities sometimes. Mm. Um, and as you say, they, um, they represent businesses and brands. I mean, in professional sports, um, athletes are essentially just walking billboards. You know, you put the logos on all over their jerseys and you have them in the ads, and, that, and that's how they're getting most of their money. Yep. And you got to act like it too. Yeah, and if so, you want, if you're wanting to sell Ford Road Range, whatever they are, whatever Israel had, uh, if you want, they're wanting to sell them. That's all it is. They're wanting to yep. sell them. And if he's um, uh, associated with the brand, then people who don't like his attitudes, I'm not saying the pink dollar because uh, straight people shouldn't be exactly that thrilled with uh, yep. that kind of attitude exactly. uh, towards gay people as well. Yeah, and it's interesting, one of my sons has been going through an elite sports area in New Zealand and a big part of the whole elite athlete program is um, like managing social media, you know, your, your social image, your sponsorship image, that, that's a big part of it. Yeah. It's not just about your physical performance. Anyway, hey, but, so we are but I, 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 def I would defend to the <laughs> death his right to say what he says. It's in the Bible, if you like, so there you go. Yeah. Well, so we asked them, we said, for, the, for example, particularly just even separating out the player from the organisations, the key things we said, uh, we asked people, do you believe sporting organisations have a major or minor role to play in promoting awareness of and behaviour change related to social issues? Mm. So this is even, and I guess it's interesting, rather than looking at the people, it's like, what about the organisations? So you might have a... Um, a player like Israel Folau doing or saying something that's uh, not correct these days, you know, should he be um, hauled out to, to drive by um, by the NRL or rugby union or any of these other outfits? So we asked this, and it was interesting to see that 52% said that these sporting organisations have a major role to play, and another 26% said a minor role to play. So that's pretty huge, you know, 78% saying that these sporting bodies actually do have a role to play in promoting awareness and behaviour change. Mm. You can't just say it's up to the player or it's up to the coach or what they do off the field isn't up to it. It's mm. like, hey, if they're pulling on the jersey and they're in, in this kind of competition, they've got to act accordingly. And I guess it's just like an employer. You know, An employer won't allow gross sex, sexualism or um, uh, sexual harassment or homophobia or anything like that amongst the employees particularly when those employees are representing the business in the public sphere. So it's the same with professional athletes. Yeah, it's not just the yeah. sponsors, it's the organisations themselves. They are wanting to sell something too. They're wanting to, yeah. to look good. I'm, I'm yeah. probably cynical about how pious they might be here and there. Uh, they're, they're wanting the best for their company as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. they're all companies and in, in commercial enterprises out there promoting sports for good reasons of sports, but also you've got, to, you've got to turn a buck as well. And interesting, I thought, looking at these results is that you start thinking, oh, maybe women are more, you know, more aware of this kind of thing, or maybe it's the younger people that are getting all PC these days and the older people are going, no, nah, no, nah, you know, you shouldn't have to do that, and all these other sorts of, sorts of things we can think about. And frankly, it was basically no changes across age or gender. Good. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I guess it is good, but yeah, you always you got to have a hypothesis and go, 
maybe it's an old person thing or young people being too sensitive or women, yeah. you know, or gays or something like that. But no, basically across the board, um, everybody going, you know, you, you've got standards to uphold and to promote. And younger people felt slightly less strongly about this. Very slightly, but then they're not disagreeing. They're just going, oh, I don't know. <laughs> it's yeah. too hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, let's go to our cognitive bias for this week yep. or logical fallacy, whichever one you want to pick. The use it or lose it tendency. Yeah. And I love I love these ones and that they look really obvious and we sit there going, well, I know all that. But it always comes down to, well, what do you do about it? You know, you might know of an issue, but do you actually consciously try and work around it? And basically, as you know, your skills get rusty and deteriorate with underuse. If you don't do something, whether it's uh, sports or an exercise or even an um, intellectual um, skill or a game or anything like that, mm. if you go a long time without using it, you're, not, you're going to get rusty at it. And that's basically back to my old um, hobby horse, which is it's about evolution. The more you need something, the more you use it, the more you get better at it and so on and so on, which is why we've got to practice. But um, what it does mean, of course, is that we've got to recognise this because, you know, I don't know if you've ever... You know, gone to do something you haven't done for a long time or like I did the other week when my son came home with a skateboard and I was like, oh, I used to skateboard and then realised that I can't anymore. <laughs> you know, I could probably pick it up again quicker than the average bloke my age who never skateboarded. I tried to but, show off to a, a young nephew um, how good I was with my football tricks. Oh, well, you dear, thought you once oh were. dear, oh, dear. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't quite pull a hammy, but I pulled my pride. It was well gone. It's, it's that old, I've seen a great T-shirt that says, the older I get, the better I was. Oh, yeah. 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 But the key thing is, of course, is that um, what it can, can come down to is that either we end up doing something poorly because we think we're better than we are or we volunteer to do something without realising that we're not as good as we once were. <sighs> or in particular, you find, people can find themselves sort of unconsciously using skills that they're not as good at as they thought or opting for a worse option but an option they feel better at. Mm. So you might be thinking, well, you know, this is the skill I've got that I'm going to apply to it. It's probably not the best one for the job but the one I feel best at using and you can end up doing a, a poorer job. It's, um, You know, we call it that man with a hammer syndrome. If, you've, if all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, you can end up doing poor, a poor work without even realising it. It's just where you've got that mental go-to thinking, oh, I know how to do this. I feel confident and skilled at applying this technique to solving that problem, and that technique may not be as good as what it should be. Um, and, and again, people may be thinking, well, what, what's the problem with that? But you, what, if you're, what if that person who's um, using the the worst skill or hasn't practiced the skill or is using a less than optimal method because it's their method that comes to them more handily. What if that person is your brain surgeon yeah. or your heart surgeon? Yeah. And and they're not thinking about what to do exactly how to do something because they're just doing things the way they always have done without really thinking, well, okay, you know, this might be my go to but is it the right the right option? Or are you wanting and, to lay a ball on for a winger and they haven't been at practice? Um yes. <laughs> oh, well, you missed that, did you? But, yeah, yeah there's, there's a great example about this. I don't know if you've heard about it. It's called the Checklist Manifesto. Now, this is a book that came out a while back. It's a really good book, and I've heard the guy interviewed only recently again on Freakonomics. And what this, this, this is an economist in slash doctor in the States. And he's managed to identify, particularly within the medical setting in the, in the US, um, where obviously every 
poor malpractice suit or poor clinical outcome and everything is, is written and, and trackable and all the rest of it. And they basically able to find out that very, very skilled doctors and very, very highly experienced doctors can still make really stupid, dumb mistakes. Mm. And that doesn't happen in fights, for example. When you think about when you get onto a plane, I mean, other than strange, strange Malaysian pilots from time to time, generally things are really safe. And we're all used to seeing pilots sitting there with a checklist. You know, if you've ever seen the pilots before they start and or your flight's delay because they haven't been able to find a bit of paperwork, they always go through this checklist. No matter how experienced a pilot will be, they still have to go through a checklist. Yep, they know it by heart, yep. but they do the checklist anyway. Exactly. And even if they've got the ego that goes, hey, I know this, I've been doing it for years, but they still have to do it. Surgeons don't have that. Right. And so when this guy instituted that practice, he found that even though the surgeons were going, I don't want to do it, but he still said, look, this is a piece of academic research, and the surgeons are going, well, it's not going to make any difference. I'm fine. You don't have to tell me what to do. And lo and behold, he did find that the surgeons that were actually following the checklist approach before, before operations were actually doing a better job. Yeah, we are flawed. Our intuitions are flawed too. Yep. So you think you know it. I've got the skill, um, and because I feel comfortable in the skill and it's practice, I'm going to do it, but it might not actually be the right one, or you're blind to your own inability. It's the old case. You don't know you've forgotten something until somebody points out you've forgotten it. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you don't know you're forgetting something in the, in the forgetfulness process. Yeah. Yeah, so again, yeah, it's just that point that you always got to stop and think, well, hang on, is this the right approach or just the approach that I'm jumping to conclusions that I'm going to use because I've used it before or it's the one I know how to use? Yeah. There's a parallel that um, comes to mind. I was involved in the contemporary dance world, um, you know, modern dance. Yep, yep. And... Uh, Good, good dancers and choreographers. Um, you know, they would do class every single day, and it's a routine. Uh, it's not always the same, but you have to do class. And they would say that um, if you miss class on one day, um, the the choreographer notices, and if you miss it for two days, you notice it, the yep. dancer. And mm -hmm. it's it's just it is bizarre, but. Uh, it, it's true. These absolutely the, the hard, how hard dancers work. Um, it is a little bit crazy. It's rather Spartan, but um, it, it's one of those things that if they don't do that every single day, they immediately go downhill. It's yep. like this ridiculous plummet. It's unfair. It shouldn't be. <laughs> Pianists don't have it. Um, a lot of well, other people don't have it, but it, it was a real plummet. Yeah, I mean, I notice that if I go more than a couple of days without mountain biking, your eye just goes out. And anybody that really knows their body and knows their sports or their hobby, whether it's snooker or football right. or whatever, yeah. they do notice it. But I think in dance where it's very social, everybody can see what you're doing and yeah. you're really analysed on how well you do something. And all the nuances in dance are very clear to see, whereas if it's football or something, it might be, well, you ran a bit like this or by yeah, that, but did yeah. you score the goal? Yeah, it's, it's very clinical. And that's why that study for the heart surgeons and so forth was so so good, because there were very clear outcomes and, and ways of measuring it. All right, let's go to New Zealand and the fashion company World. Gosh, they've been in the news for um, uh, mislabeling, shall we say, uh, something along those lines. Well, maybe when they said world, they mean that their products are made throughout the world, not just New Zealand. But <laughs> it's the, the, it's the, old, the Kiwi tall poppy syndrome, alive and well, 
um, pulling people out for being human. But yeah, it's, it's true. If you're going to be really um, beat the drum about being Kiwi made, and then you found that you're not. Um, making your stuff in New Zealand, then, of course, you, you know, you're building yourself up for failure. Yeah, oh, actually, it was the excuse that was the funny thing that didn't yeah. go down too well. Oh, no, the labels are made in New Zealand that say it's made in New Zealand. <laughs> oh, okay, really? To get the ferret out of the elephant cage, it doesn't fool anybody. But yeah, you know, they, they tried it on. It's now, it's now being found to be lying. You've been, you, you're, you're thinking we're gullible and stupid at the same time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, it's, it's interesting. When I had a look at this, I thought, well, you know, and again, you always people got to go, well, do they care what the issue is? Do, you know, do people really value mm. whether it's made in New Zealand or, or, or in, a, you know, in, a, in a viable place? And the stud is a bit old, but what I quite like is the fact that um, even back then, and I'm talking about 2012, 2013, when we were doing a bit of research about this around the world, mm. The, the proportions of people that were saying, no, no, you want it, you, your products and your clothing to be made in a, in a good environment, in a good country and so forth, it was really high then. So 2012, we, we asked, um, did a survey in Canada, 79% of Canadians said they do make an effort to ensure they know how and where things they purchase are made. Now, 79%, you know, people say that. Yeah. It's probably going to be a bit lower, but even if you whacked off 20%, mm. you've still got a majority. Yeah. 2013, um, it was a similar bit, but this is right around the world, 18,000 people, 16 countries. 70% said they would be willing to pay a couple of extra dollars to improve working conditions in countries where inspections and safety standards may not be up to par. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, and, and again, it's like you want to buy that jersey for 75 or $78, and if you know the $78 one has got all these extra checks and balances, you probably would. Will the market um, agree, though? I mean, they're saying they would. But if somebody else yep. can charge slightly less, uh, yep. they do because as much as people say they'd like to pay another yep. couple of dollars, it seems as though the market doesn't work that way, that the cheaper one succeeds. Yep. And um, interestingly, in the same study, uh, more than 40% agreed that they don't really care what kind of conditions employees have to work in and they just want choice and no cost. Wow. So yeah. here we've got 70% saying they'll be willing to pay extra and 40% saying they don't care. So... I guess there's ten percent here who are either confused or they're um, <laughs> or they're honest. Yeah. Going, I would, but you know what? I don't really care. Yeah. Well, that I'm yeah. surprised it's that high. Forty percent saying stuff them. Um, and look, it's really hard to know. You can you say you want to know how and where things are made. You can know where, but knowing how they're made and the exact conditions, uh, you'd really have to be a social journalist, wouldn't you? Yeah, you do. So you can go, you know, and you we all know that there will be very good Chinese factories and very poor ones, and. Yeah. There used to be bad ones in New Zealand and so forth. Yeah, yep. and if you stop so, if you stop buying this stuff, do you want them to have no job? It's a difficult decision. It is. It is. It's a tough one. We've all been yeah. there, and um, I guess people just want to have their cake and eat it too. We want to have the best stuff with um, with low low guilt. Yeah. Jonathan Ipsos, our human statistics this week. Thank you very much. Uh, Jonathan Ipsos. <laughs> it almost might do, I huh? Wish. <laughs> Jonathan Dodd from Ipsos, human statistics this week. Thank you very much. Thank you. And next up, Enviro News. We have an expert botanist responds to the stuff article on curry dieback, which made some oh, pretty bold claims. We'll go through it after the break. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. For details, visit dockedge.nz. Enviro News and Issues on Radio Live. Friends, you owe it to yourself and your family to leave the congested city and enjoy what nature intended you to enjoy.
Listeners, uh, was a week, no, maybe a little bit longer ago, actually, a couple of weeks ago, an interesting opinion piece came up on the Stuff website, the Stuff News website. They do this quite a bit. Readers have their say about stuff. Um, but there are a lot of assertions in here that shouldn't go unchallenged and apparently, and also um, some claims that there's been silence in response. Therefore, it increases the veracity of my argument. Alistair Goodwin may say. Alistair Goodwin wrote it. A reader writes in the, the on the Stuff website. It's about Cowrie dieback and claiming that we really don't have anything to worry about. It is a natural process and there have been hysterical claims and this is actually... Um, the hysterical claims are incorrect and... And there is some ascribing of malice there as well. All right, why haven't the experts, as in the article it says so-called experts, responded? We have one on the line. Botanist Peter DeLang, uh, formerly of the Department of Conservation for many, many years, and now at Unitech. Uh, Peter, did you try and respond? Uh, yes, I've actually tried to respond to a number of stuff, uh, articles that have been published on Cody Dieback over the last sort of uh, four or five months, but I find that my comments tend to get ignored. And that this is me commenting as a, as a comment, you know, in, in the comment section. Uh, probably because there's actually so much information that's being said that needs to be corrected that it's very hard to keep it short and succinct. Yeah. But. You know, I, I, I take my hat off to a good one because, in a way, he's actually his, his comments make a lot of sense in, in, in the fact that one of the glaring problems that stands out with the Cody dieback phenomenon is that there doesn't really seem to be very effective communication. So his comments, I'm not surprised at all about nobody actually in, in, in who's studying Cody dieback or knows about Cody dieback is that surprised with the kind of comments he made because it's actually very, very hard to get good, reliable information about Cody dieback out of the people who are studying it. So you're saying this is what we'd expect given that current status of communication? Yeah, well, I mean, if, if, if you want to look at it cynically, let, let's consider the cabbage tree uh, sudden decline phenomenon that uh, really raised its ugly head in the late 80s and early 90s. Yep. And there were wild predictions that uh, the Tikoka, the New Zealand cabbage tree, was going to go extinct, but still there. If you think about it, in the 70s, there was widespread concern about the death of beach forest. Uh, we were going to lose our beach forest. So if, if you look at it in that context, then it's not surprising that when people aren't given much information or given varying information from different people, that they're going to conclude that this is just a beat up mm. and there really is no problem. But in this case, Goodwin is wrong on all levels. Some of the comments that he, he made for a start is that we actually don't know how many Cody trees there are in New Zealand. Well, that's probably true, but uh, there is a fairly good estimate. You may remember, Graham, a few years ago, there was a guy who sat in a Cody tree at Titarangi because he objected to the fact that it was going to be flattened oh, yeah. for the development of a house. Now, in that particular case, um, Helen Clark made a comment which prompted the then Minister of Conservation, Maggie Barry, to get a little upset. And so there was much scurrying around and uh, it was discovered that Landcare Research actually has fairly good figures as to how many adult and ricker stage Cody trees there are in New Zealand. Regrettably, I can't remember the figures now, but it was a large amount, plus or minus 200,000 estimated. Right. But uh, Dr Peter Bellingham might be worth talking to because he's the person who holds, holds that information with Landcare Research. So we do know roughly how many Cody trees there are in New Zealand and of course we know their distribution. 
We also know that this disease is a killer. Uh, studies have been done that, that quite categorically show that if you inoculate speedling Cody with this uh, Phytophthora, the, the Cody killer, there's 100% death. Like rabies, so, like rabies in humans at the moment. Totally, totally. Um, another couple of statements that he made, uh, he, he said that basically humans don't move it and, and pigs don't and, and, and so forth. Well, it's well established, very well established that humans move it. And in fact, there was a report commissioned by NPI uh, done by uh, Black and Dickey from uh, uh, Lincoln University, Amanda Black and Ian Dickey, from the Bioprotection Research Centre in 2016 that actually looked at the whole problem. And uh, it's well worth reading. Mm. And that shows quite clearly amongst many of uh, the issues they raised what the problem has been. And it tends to focus on the fact that there's been very poor communication. There's really no, um, I'm going to be sent to poster boy, but there's nobody there blowing the trumpet and actually talking to the public properly about what the problems are. So what you have is a kind of a knowledge vacuum. You have academics doing their work, researchers doing their work. They're all sort of doing the best they can, but there's nobody actually taking it all out and putting it in a way that people can understand yeah. to the public. And, you know, when, when you do that, Graham, what is the inevitable uh, response? Crackpots. Yeah. People running around telling you thou shalt not walk in cowrie. Um, people running around telling you this is rubbish. Um, and so Goodwin's kind of comments sadly make sense because they reflect the problem we have here. Okay. Aren't being upfront. Oh, one thing not in Alistair Goodwin's favour is a, a bit of flaky thinking, actually, that if uh, 20% of cowries means that one in five are doomed, um, but it also <laughs> means that we have to know the total population of the trees. It, the, you don't. That, I mean, that's just statistical nonsense. No. It's no. confusing... Um, uh, proportions with absolute numbers. So, anyway. Totally, totally. Yeah. Okay, so that, I mean, that one's out of the way. That he's, he's not a stats major, but he's, he, no, make, he no. makes some other points. Here's one that I may actually, uh, if this is incorrect, call crying wolf. I think crying wolf can be a bad thing when people um, make inflammatory, um, quasi-hysterical uh, claims uh, thinking that they're doing good. Forest and birds say the cowrie could be extinct in our lifetime. Is that mm. hysterical or not? He's oh, saying totally. rubbish. Yeah, no, that, there I actually uh, totally agree with Goodwin. That's just nonsense. Um, but it's the kind of response, as I said, that you're going to get when there's a bit of a knowledge vacuum. So, I mean, there is absolutely no way that cowrie trees are going to go extinct within, uh, say, the next 70 years. Mm hmm but they are going to decline. That is very clear. Uh, and depending on our ability to control the rate of spread of this disease, that will be what will dictate its loss. At the moment, there are many, many places where Cody trees occur where, uh, in theory, so long as people or pigs or whatever other vectors don't get into there carrying this, uh, the spores of this disease, then, you know, Kauri will be secure. Offshore islands, uh, I'm not talking about Great Barrier, for example, but places like Little Barrier, places like the Pornites have Kauri trees on them. So as a species, Kauri is very unlikely to go extinct in even, say, the next 100 years. But what will happen is that we will be losing it from large tracts of its range. And here we've got to be really clear. It's not just a species we're losing, Graham. It's an entire ecosystem and an ecosystem driver or engineer. Yeah. Kauri creates a particular forest, a 
association. It has a whole lot of things that have evolved with it that are dependent on it. It even controls ultimately the soils. It, it changes the soils in which it grows. Yeah. If you remove that, we don't know what's going to replace it, but it's probably not going to be great. Yeah. Okay, um, I'm just going to read a little more from this article so you can respond because in the in the comment section, that's a route to madness, of course, but it's an interesting barometer on how people feel. Uh, he says, as a keen plants man with the basic knowledge in high school biology, I accept kauri dieback as real and kills kauri and perhaps other trees and that it can be spread by humans. It can also be spread by other any other animal that walks, including birds. This is irrefutable. Is it irrefutable? Well, again, we, we really don't know. Uh, what we do know, I mean, there, there was I got a lot of flack last year for saying that uh, pigs move it, and then lo and behold, in December last year, a paper was published that showed that pigs move it. Basically, any animal that uh, grovels around in the dirt or around the roots or gets mud that's infected with the spores of this disease has the potential to move it. Heck, inferior hedgehogs move it. What this highlights is, is a thing I've been banging on about for quite a while. We don't really know very much about its ecology. When you consider how they've ramped up research on this since 2006, uh, a famous date, I might add, that it's constantly emblazoned on people's minds that this is when the disease first turned up in New Zealand. Not true as well. But nevertheless, since then, tremendous amount of work has been done, but not a lot of work done on its ecology. Mm. Not a lot of work's been done on the fact that we now know that it can spread into other native trees. We know for a fact now that it can uh, attack and kill Tanikaha. There is some evidence that it can also get into Riwariwa. But what we don't know is what other trees in the forest network are susceptible to it. Uh-huh. We, we, we don't know about natural resistance. Uh, currently, it looks pretty, pretty grim, but is there natural resistance out there? Why isn't there people you know, out there looking to see whether there's natural resistance? Yeah. Okay, uh, another assertion Alistair Goodwin makes in this is that kauri will survive just fine. I am 100% sure of this because it's the very basis of the natural process, that this is just a natural process, things go through this all the time. Um, just your response to that. Well, I think there he's probably alluding to the, uh, you know, the hysteria that greeted the sudden decline in cabbage tree. Uh, and uh, with the beech forest decline and the Kamahi Rata forest declines. If, if we go back, there is certainly a cyclical process that often happens to, to species and, and to forest structure. So I think that's what he's alluding to. But I, I think in this case, um, it's a bit delusional, really. I, I do think that we have got something here we need to actually sit up and pay attention to. Well, you see, the, the, the real problem we've got here is we've got an organism where they can't even agree whether it's native or whether it's introduced. Yeah. Um, the jury's kind of out. I mean, one story that you'll hear often quoted is that this disease was brought into New Zealand by forestry from Malaysia when they were playing around with different kinds of kauri, agathis, from around its range, and then they, they spread it. From, from Waipoa, it was spread to various places where they planted their uh, selected strains of kauri. Yeah. Uh, if that's true... The, the genetics should show you that there's probably only one or two strains, as it were. But what they're actually finding genetically is that the stuff on Great Barrier Island and, and, and the stuff in Waitakere and the stuff in Waipoa are genetically different from each other. The levels of genetic variation are small, 
it's possible, I guess, that some of that variation has occurred through spontaneous mutation because these things can move very rapidly. But it does actually kind of suggest that this is a native disease. And this again highlights some of the problems. We know that a phytophthora-like organism was being studied in the early 70s in the Waitakere Range. It's the late Frank Newhook at Auckland University had recognised, and he was one of our few phytophthora experts, had recognised that there was a phytophthora problem there and got students working on it. We also know in the 50s people were picking up evidence that bat kauri trees were susceptible to some kind of dieback. And there's even uh, a strong hint, if you look at the records of when they used to go gum bleeding in Waipua Forest, when it was getting too hard to dig kauri gum out of the peat bogs, people used to nick trees and climb up and down and, and, and get the gum. But what puzzled them when they stopped this practice was that trees in Waipua and very remote areas were also dying. And it because, of course, when they start to die, they exude gum. It's quite logical to think, oh, well, that must have been gum bled. But what we're kind of getting at is it's probably been here a lot longer than people think. Mm. Some genetic estimates suggest it's been here at least 300 years, but probably longer. So we've got that biostatus issue that, that's sitting, uh, sitting in the background about is it native, isn't it native? Um, if it is native, why on earth is it suddenly moving so quickly? And, and there again, there's a lot of argument. But I, I honestly believe it's because people are a lot more mobile than they used to be. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people are going all over the place. It's very easy to get in your car and go to Waipar and then and be back in Coromandel by, by evening. And if you happen to have stood on some muddy ground and not cleaned your boots, well, you've just transferred it. Okay, so um, uh, another point he doesn't make, and I just wanted to raise it. He seems very, very confident that this is just a natural process. The curry will be fine. It doesn't take into account how less likely our curry are going to be able to cope because of the diminished range in numbers. And when I say diminished, that's almost humorous um, compared with what the range in numbers of curry used to be. Mm. Um that's not raised. Is that a valid point, or is the genetic diversity in the curry that we have just the same as it would have been? Well, I don't know if we could say the genetic diversity is the same as it would have been. I mean, common sense would tell you that when you've eliminated about 80% of it, that would probably lost a lot of unique um, genotypes. And I am not sure there was work being done by a number of students trying to look at genetic diversity in Kauri, but I personally haven't seen publications on that. But it's fairly evident that it's it's still quite a variable species. But... Okay, I just um, want you to respond because you've alluded to what he's criticising here. Uh, It seems to be spread by people and, you know, our mobility is a a major new vector that wasn't there before. He says, I'll quote him, the people who love the Waitakere's will be excluded while the experts traipse them far and wide. Uh, Do you want me to respond there? Okay. Well... The, the, the idea that the Waitakere's will be uh, ex, uh, preferentially excluding uh, Joe Public, but the experts will be allowed to um, trace through their willy-nilly and do as they please is also um, rather debatable. Uh, Unitech, for example, uh, would like to do more work in, in the Waitakere ranges. A lot of researchers would. We have to go through exactly the same processes as everybody else, and if anything, we're even more minutely scrutinised, and rightly so. I mean, you can imagine it would be a complete disaster if it was shown that a researcher actually successfully inoculated a, a, a hitherto clean stand because of really lousy hygiene practices. Mm. 
And here I can speak from some experience because I'm involved with a team looking at lichen diversity in Auckland uh, sort of regional parks. And we have to go through the nth degree and rightly so to get into these sites uh, and constantly having to clean boots wherever we go to make sure that we're not spreading the disease. So I, I actually don't think that's right of anything. It's going to be people flouting the uh, rules who will spread it and it's going to be people who think it's, oh, I'm all right, Jack, you know, no one will notice me if I just duck in and go pig hunting. Or, or they've know, read the article and the comments and say it's yep. all a hoax. Well, wow, it's, yep. it doesn't matter. It's hysteria. Yeah, totally. But, I mean, his points are valid in the context good. that good information is not being given to the public. And also that there are so many things that really need to be looked at still. I mean, for example, uh, there's been a lot said about phosphite, the idea of, of injecting trees with, with phosphite. And uh, I was a bit horrified to see that uh, a, a Auckland councillor basically said it's just a short-term fix and it, uh, you know, it, 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 it's not even really established if it works very well, but we'll be trialling it in the Waitakere Ranges. Well, uh, it was phosphite that stopped uh, the loss of the avocado industry overseas because avocado is notoriously susceptible to phytophthora. But plants that have been injected with phosphite, they're cured. So that's telling us something. We know that in Australia, with phytophthora, not the one we've got here, but they're basically behaving the same way. The phytophthora in Australia, that's been killing the Jarrah forests and, and making a, a complete ecological disaster of that country. They know that if they spray the forest with phosphite, they can hold it back, or in fact they can reverse the decline, they can actually bring back trees that are about 98% dead. So we have actually got a potential cure. But what interests me is why phosphite? And and what is the link between that and soil phosphorus? Now, now here's something to think about, Graham. We know that prior to the arrival of Polynesians, New Zealand was the seabird capital of the world. We know that a thousand years ago, seabirds were nesting in the alpine zone right down to the sea. All across New Zealand, everywhere you went, there were seabirds. Seabirds taking nutrients from the sea and dumping it onto the land. Nutrients very rich, you know, and phosphorus. Maybe, you know, one of the things we're seeing now is just, just putting it out there. Why is this disease taking off now? It hasn't actually taken that long for the available phosphorus that are being brought in by these animals to wash out. Certainly, there's very few places now where you can wander around New Zealand and find the seabird ecosystem functioning in, in forest. Uh, the Paparoa Range would be one where there's just all black petrels, but virtually that ecosystem's gone. Are we seeing an increased susceptibility to these trees because of the loss of a natural buffer that used to be there? Hmm. Is it as simple as just eerily top-dressing our forest with superphosphate? Huh? Don't know, but the people I've been talking to are beginning to think, hang on a minute, there might be something in that. Although it's the accepted norm that our forests, they like to be relatively nutrient-poor and, and, um, and acid soils, is it not? Well, uh, I would dispute that. Okay. If you talk to any uh, horticulturalist, nurseryman who grows native plants, they will rapidly tell you that our, our uh, very quickly tell you our native plants, by and large, are actually quite greedy and enjoy nutrients. They well, flourish better <laughs> if they're well fed. There is a small group, but a very small group of New Zealand plants that don't like um, nutrients. 
uh, or, or rich sort of soils. And notably, those are actually quite closely related to ones in Australia. Ah. Uh, a good example would be, in fact, the tea trees, you know? Yeah. However, a lot of our plants are actually very greedy and they like soils that are high in potassium, phosphorus, uh, nitrogen and, and magnesium and calcium and those kinds of things. They're, they're, they're what we call base-rich uh, followers, if you like. So, by and large, we could be actually seeing, you know, well, let's put it this way, a lot of research that has been done into the seabird ecosystem is comparatively new. But we're beginning to realise that, you know, thousand years ago or more, New Zealand was absolutely thriving with animals that were bringing nutrients from the sea onto the land. Mm. And that had a huge impact. I mean, I, I'm just thinking on the Chatham Islands where a farmer showed me uh, three years ago that he, he was digging through his paddock and came across this bizarre white hard rock, which he had noticed that when he cut into it, it kind of ground up into dust. And where the dust blew, his paddock went bright green. <laughs> what he was actually finding was an enormous guano deposit, a huge one. Wow. So, you know, and that was well inland. So yeah. the thing is, Here's something that needs to be studied, and, and, and I think that's what the real problem is. We need a strong advocate to explain the facts to everybody. We need to be inclusive about this. We need to collaborate much better. I've said this many times before. Instead of this current environment where there's all this intellectual property rights and scientists are really actually, frankly, scared to speak out, because if they do, that could be their funding cut. Or they might have seen something that the opposition might get, get in. And, that, and, you know, so we need to actually say, stop this nonsense, guys. We've got to pick the best people to work on the problem and we've got to talk to the public. Right. You know? Yeah, a little like industry on a wall footing. Uh, let's, uh, <laughs> let's all get together and fight it at once. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, looking at cleaning stations, for example. I mean, we've got these cleaning stations everywhere. But how effective are they? We, we know that the, the, the trigene, et cetera, will kill the, the zoospores that this, this disease produces. Uh, we know it will actually kill any sort of live inoculum, but we don't know what it would do about the little resist, uh, sort of uh, resistance spores that they also produce for when times are bad, They're what they call the ooze spores. So, you know, that's a fundamental thing. I, one of the times I, I did an interview with you, I was absolutely uh, gobsmacked that I had a, a high school uh, boy come to me and say, well, look, I, I want to do something. And I got him in touch with Plant and Food, and they were absolutely gobsmacked with his ideas that he had about how to make more effective cleaning stations. That's what I'm talking about. We pride ourselves as a nation of being innovative, but uh, maybe our innovation is disappearing for fear of losing funding. Mm. I would say to the government, my challenge to them is to stop this nonsense, look at all the different CRIs, and cherry-pick the best people who know what they're talking about out of there, fund them and get on with it. Otherwise, yeah, you know, forest and birds' predictions will eventually prove to be right. And, I mean, it's no joke. Uh, Fifteen years ago now, the International Union of the Conservation of Nature, uh, a guy called Elios Farjon, wanted to list Rimu, Totra and Kauri as threatened species. And uh, the New Zealand Threatened Plant Committee kind of laughed at him about that because his basis was the amount of trees that have been felled as an area of occupancy across the country. When the kauri disease hit the news, he came back to us and said, well, now surely you guys are going to list kauri as a threatened species. 
And again, we said no for much the same reasons that Goodwin kind of did, which is we didn't know then how many kauri trees there were. We didn't have a good idea of the area of occupancy and we didn't have an understanding of the rate of decline. Now we do. And next week, kauri will be formally listed as vulnerable, nationally vulnerable using the New Zealand Threat Classification System. And I think actually that's really sad that we're going to have to do that. But that does at least show that a objective panel of experts representing a range of different walks of New Zealand knowledge on, on um, in New Zealand flora. So this isn't a doc-driven thing. It isn't doc people sitting around a table and making a decision, which people often say, oh, my God, you know, doc's made a decision. That's biased, when it isn't necessarily. This is a bunch of people who've come together from universities, museums, consultancies, and they have all agreed that kauri is now a threatened species because we now have the information. So... Let's just stop this nonsense about whether actually it's a threatened species or not. Let's actually get off our behinds and actually work together to solve the problem. Peter DeLang, thank you very much. And, well, you've had your response now. <laughs> Thanks, Graham. New Zealand is yours. Go there now. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Doc Edge Festival. New Zealand's premier documentary film festival. After the latest information segment, comes a time. Neil Young, 40 years old. Grant Smithies and myself give it a respin and some background info. Gosh, it's a lovely thing.